If you recall, we've been uh, entitling this whole series, The Big Picture, God's Glorious Plan for the Family. And so each of the messages that we have covered have, uh, have been along these lines in order to uh, teach us to look at our relationships, especially our family relationships, and to learn what that has to do with, our, with respect to our relationship with God. So we're looking at the big picture, and uh, regardless of where we are with respect to our family life and family situation, you have heard me say every week that every one of us experiences some kind of brokenness in the relationships that are around us. We all have to deal with it. Nevertheless, we are looking at these uh, results or these um, big principles here that speak to us regardless of where we are in our family situation. So as we look at these, there are four of them, and I'm going to read through them. It says, first of all, number one, Jesus impacts all my relationships, and they will not satisfy as God intended apart from him. And what that tells us is that uh, with Christ, only with him, can we experience the fullness and the satisfaction that he intended in our relationships. Number two, godly relationships lead me to worship the Creator. Just as we look at the, the beautiful creation and we look at the beautiful uh, snow, I, I, I woke up Saturday morning, I looked out my window, and was like, what? I didn't expect to see what I saw. And it was just all, you know, covered in white snow, just another surprise snow. But uh, we see like that. And how many of you have been places in the world, have been two places in the world where it was just a breathtaking view, a breathtaking sun? scenery there. Anybody, anybody like that? Um, yeah, I mean, you look at that and it just, uh, for me anyways, it just causes me to praise God for what he has done within creation. Well, the same thing is true when we see God working in our relationships in a good and right and proper way. That too should cause us to give praise to him. Number three, the church serves to build and strengthen the family, even as families build and strengthen the church. So the end of God's uh, social unit, the family, that that is not where it stops. So you have me as the individual, and I was born into a family, and this family is part of a larger society. But in God's perspective, that larger society uh, includes in a huge way the life of the church. And so we come together as individuals and as families, we come together in the church. And we are to bless the church even as the church blesses us. So uh, this is going to be coming up uh, in, uh, in uh, some of the topics to come in the next couple of weeks. And the, fa- the fourth one here, the last one, says, As a follower of Christ, I am committed to defend God's plan for the family in the world. So I might be broken and my family relationships might be broken, but that doesn't mean that I can't declare to the world what God intended with the relationships that he made. So if a husband and wife, they break up and they divorce, and that happens a lot, that doesn't mean that Christians, either one of them, can't stand up and affirm and defend the marriage relationship, even though in their personal life it's broken. And this is the point. We are here not to serve ourselves. We are here to stand up for the truth, to advance the kingdom of God, and to declare what is right in this world that has been broken by sin. So that's our fourth principle. Now, as we consider that, this morning we come to our topic, and I want to start by covering these five things, the five super spiritual acts for Christians. Now, I don't know if you saw my email, but how many, did you, did you guys kind of think, I wonder what they are, you know, did, did, and you start listening, what, are, what, do you, what do you think that they are? And uh, uh, you might have gotten some of them right, but let me start out by 
going to number one. So here's the number one, or I should say one, the first one, of the five super spiritual acts for Christians. And it is this, the gift of speaking in tongues. At the Tower of Babel, God confused the languages of men. And when he confused the languages of men, they ceased to be able to communicate freely with one another. But the gift of tongues at the coming of the Spirit of God at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he moved upon the disciples and they began to speak in the languages of other people. A lot of times I think we think that God is uh, sitting up there on his throne and his primary language is English. But I assure you that that is not the case. And as a result, there is this communication that needs to take place from God to us and us to God and us to one another and especially with the brokenness that sin brings among the languages that we speak to one another. There is a language barrier. And whenever you go on a mission trip, um, you have to overcome the language barrier in order to share the gospel with the people in that place. Now, we go to Zambia. Those are the, the mission trips that I have done. The, the, uh, the last mission trips I have taken have been to Zambia, and they speak English there. And that has made a huge difference in me being able to share and to preach and to teach the Word of God. But I've been to other places in the world, too. The Czech Republic and uh, Brazil and uh, some other places in Honduras and um, uh, other places where they don't speak English. And because they don't speak English, you have to carry something with you that has a translation of, you know, the gospel or what you want to say. Or you have to have someone who can interpret for you as you speak something. And you got to pause and wait for them to translate it. And then when they're done, you got to, you know, say a little bit more and then they, you know, stop and translate it. It, it turns every sermon, it makes every sermon twice as long. You know what I mean, right? Because you got to say it and they got to translate it. So uh, it's difficult to overcome the language barrier. But there's this gift, the speak, gift of speaking in tongues, where the disciples, the Spirit of God, came upon them, and they spoke earthly languages that they did not know personally. But the people that were there and gathered on that day, they heard these languages spoken, and they understood it, and they understood the declaration and the proclamation of the things of God. Says that they declared the, in Acts chapter two, they declared the praises of God, and it says in First Corinthians fourteen when Paul addresses this uh, gift of tongues and he's comparing it with the gift of prophecy, he says that the gift of tongues is a sign for unbelievers. Now I wish that we would see more of what happened in Acts chapter two as far as speaking languages that we don't know than we do. I, we, I, I wish we saw that more, and maybe if we were more intent on going to other parts of the world where uh, we couldn't communicate with them, maybe in that case we would see the Spirit descend upon us and enable us to speak the language of the people that we were around. I wish that were true. But it, nevertheless, Paul says in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-two, he says that it is a sign gift, a miraculous gift for those who do not believe. And then we see that being able to speak in these tongues, these languages, also be a prayer language between us and God. We speak to God, it says in 1 Corinthians 14, but it is a great evangelistic blessing to be able to speak in this way. And Paul says in verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 14, don't forbid speaking in tongues. So this is a great and miraculous gift that God has bestowed on some in the past. and uh, Maybe even in our day, I do not believe that the gifts have passed 
away. But that is the first super spiritual gift listed in Scripture. The second one is this, and this again is uh, compared with the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, and it is this, the gift of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, number two. The Bible is full of mysteries to be understood. As a matter of fact, if you read through the New Testament, you will see this idea of the mysteries being revealed, and it is the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has been unveiled and fleshed out and put into motion and put into play and accomplished by Jesus when he came to this earth and he went to the cross and he died. The mystery is revealed. The mystery is made known. And that's what the gift of prophecy does. It is a proclamation of the truths of the word of God. It is a proclamation of the mysteries of God. The gift of prophecy is one of the greatest gifts. In the gift of prophecy, you have sometimes the telling of what is going to come down the road in the future. And sometimes, most of the time, it is the declaration of the truths of the kingdom of God. So if you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, like the prophets of Isaiah, for example, or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or any of the other prophets, what you have is the prophetic utterance of the truths of God, which involves about this much telling of what's going to happen in the future and this much of the proclamation of God's truths in encouragement and exhortation to the people of God to live and to honor and to obey God's truth. The gift of prophecy is the proclamation of God's truth. It is God who, it is that which distinguishes God from all other things and all other idols and all other false religions. Because when we speak the truth of God, we speak the truth. We don't speak our opinion, we don't speak our ideas, we don't speak our philosophies. We speak the truths of the kingdom of God. And we stand as testimony. As the proclaimers of the truth, we stand as a testimony to the world of what is right and true as opposed to sinful, human, false ideas and wayward philosophies. When Jesus came, he knew, he knew what was going, he knew what was going to happen next. As a matter of fact, we see a couple of passages like, uh, you know, with the donkey. He says, when you go into the village, you're going to find this and this. And when the owner of the donkey says this, then you say that and You know, he kind of laid it all out. And in that way, he was kind of sharing the future there. But if you listen to what Jesus said the bulk of the time, he proclaimed the truth of the kingdom of God. He came to manifest the kingdom of God and to make known the kingdom of God. And that's what he did when he spoke and he opened his mouth. So having the gift of prophecy is a great blessing indeed. As a matter of fact, it says concerning the gift of tongues, if you're in the church and you have the gift of tongues, make sure that there is one who interprets. Because the interpretation of the gift of tongues is a prophecy. It is a prophetic utterance for the building up and the exhortation of the church. So that's number two, the gift of prophecy. The third super spiritual gift is the gift of faith. The gift of faith. Now, faith is really important, right? I mean, you can't come to church without hearing about faith, and you can't encourage one another without, you know, encouraging one another's faith. It is where we encourage one another and help one another to trust in God, no matter what is happening, right? It is to believe in God and to trust in His character and to take Him at His word. That is the gift of faith. 
In the book of Hebrews, it says that with, this is, is without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Please him. When Jesus came and he went out and all the people just kind of thronged around him and they wanted him to heal them, he looked at them and he wanted to see their faith. And oftentimes, his compassion goes out and he will say something like this, your faith hath made you whole. Do you remember that? When, when you read in the Gospels, your faith has made you whole. Jesus responded to the faith of the people a lot of times when he healed them. And he also taught that if we had the faith of a mustard seed, you remember that? If we have the faith of a mustard seed, we could say to that mountain, be uprooted and cast into the sea. And we would see it, right? Wouldn't that be great? I've tried to do that more than and it has never happened. So uh, I guess that speaks to how large my faith is. It's really like, you know, really small. But that's the encouragement to us. That's the power of faith. That's the strength of fully trusting and relying upon God. That if we have just that little bit of faith, we can move things in our lives. Things can happen. Big things can happen in our lives. And so we come to God and we seek Him fully in faith. God responds to our faith. And having faith is a true blessing of God. Three. Number four. The gift of of giving. The gift of giving. Now you might think, well, why, how did this make the list? The gift of giving. God gives some the ability to bless others by giving. Giving is selfless and giving is generous. Giving puts aside our own needs and desires and wants. It puts aside our own material things and it t- turns them over completely to others. The world will always have the poor, and you probably know some poor people or some people who are not as well off. Um, You can just kind of look around, and you probably see some around you here, and that's okay. The world will always have the poor people, And, and, and actually here in our United States, we are more blessed than most, the majority of the rest of the world. Again, if you go on a mission trip and you go to a third world country, you will uh, see a whole different picture of how people live. Uh, if we consider what's happening in Ukraine, this, uh, this, horrible, this horrible thing that is happening in Ukraine with the Russians' ag- aggress- aggressors uh, overtaking and uh, bombing and shelling and displacing all of those people. Three weeks ago, they were living lives like you and me. And today, it's all gone. And that's pretty So be thankful that you have what you have. And uh, be thankful, we can be thankful that we are blessed as we are blessed because a lot of the people in the other parts of the world are not like that. I remember going on Brazil, it was one of my first missionary trips. I was a young, young man and we went into this area in Brazil and they were living in these uh, makeshift cardboard kind of, uh, you know, wood and cardboard combination houses, not, you know, not bigger than, a, than four by four or whatever. They were, it was pretty sad. You had all these people living in these developments. And I remember as we were getting ready to leave at the end of the trip that one of the ladies brought out her baby to us and wanted us to take the baby. Not because she didn't want it, but because she wanted a better life for the child and a life that she knew that 
we rich Americans would be able to provide. So that's pretty sad. It's uh, gut-wrenching. The world will always have the poor. And the world always craves more and more. And yet there is this gift of giving that God blesses some. He enables and blesses some Christians to be able to give to others. Uh, Now, it's not about how much you have, but the freedom with which you let go what you do have. So we can think of the widow who had the two mites, and when when she put all, I I mean, just two pennies, let's say, she put the two pennies into the offering, Jesus said that she gave more than all the others because she gave it all. That's the gift of giving. It is the, it is the heart that doesn't hold on to the wealth and the riches and the materialistic things of the world, but for the sake of the gospel is willing and able to let it go. That's the gift of giving. The person with the gift of giving does not hold on to their wealth. The person with the gift of giving does not consume their wealth upon themselves, but they see it as a gift of God that moves through them in order to bless other people. Through the gift of giving, we can help the poor And as Christians, we have the obligation and the responsibility to help the poor of the world. And so let us give freely. He who has the gift of giving has a true gift indeed. And that brings us to the fifth super spiritual gift or act. And it is the act of self-sacrifice. Jesus said that giving your life for your neighbor is the greatest act that one can do. Giving your life for your neighbor, that's the greatest thing that you can do. As a matter of fact, when we as, per, as people come to Jesus, when we accept Christ and we experience this thing called salvation, he calls us to be his disciples. And John chapter 12 verse 25 says that in being his disciple, we have to give up our lives. And so in effect, as Christians, we are self-sacrificing ourselves. We are sacrificing ourselves. We're giving ourselves. Actually, it's a living sacrifice, as Romans chapter 12 calls it. But we give ourselves, we yield ourselves, we yield our life in order to follow Christ. Jesus said, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your life. That's pretty strong language. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. I actually had somebody years ago come up to me, and they had that passage in Luke chapter 14, They had turned to that passage, and that passage is pretty strong. It says, unless you hate father and mother and wife and sister and brother and land, and and even if, you you know, unless you hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. And they said, Pastor, I can't do that. I can't hate. Pastor, I can't hate my family. I can't do that. I can't hate can't hate my life but that's what it, that's the gift of being able to turn my life over these are the five great gifts of scripture the speaking in tongues the gift of prophecy the gift of faith the gift of giving the gift of self-sacrifice pastor how can i do any of those i can barely speak english let alone another language pastor i'm so slow when it comes to spiritual things I don't know the future. I can't speak God's word very well. Pastor, I only have enough faith to barely keep my head above the water, let alone move a mountain into the ocean. I can't do that. Pastor, I can barely pay my bills. I drive a car that has to be jump-started every time I get into it. 
And it only makes right turns. I don't have anything to give to anybody else. And give my life to someone? Yikes! That is really, really hard to do. It would, really, it would have to be someone who is really close to me if I were to give my life for them. And even then, it would be hard. However, despite all of these things, there is one thing that surpasses them all. There is one thing that surpasses all five of those super spiritual gifts. And this is the one thing that all of us can do and partake in. It is the one thing that all of us are called to do by the help of God's Spirit. And if you do want this one thing, you will be greater than all who do those other five things. You will be greater than all other Christians and all other people on the face of the earth if you do this one thing. 1 Corinthians 13.1 Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now you get it, right? (laughs) Bang, 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 bang. If I don't have love, even though I can speak in tongues, the language of God and of men, if I have not love, I am just making a whole bunch of noise that's irritating. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2 says, And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 2. And you can turn there in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be here for a few moments. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2 again. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Verse 3 again, And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So of all of the things that love is put against, those are the five things there. But unless we do any of those with love, we are nothing. And it counts as nothing. Now that's a pretty strong statement. Now here we are talking, we've been talking about our relationships. We've been talking about the relationships we have and the need for us to strengthen and to build the relationships that are godly and that are appropriate before the eyes of God. We are having the need, all of us are, because all of our relationships are broken to some degree. We have the need to rejuvenate, to, to rejuvenate and restore our relationships. And the only way that we can do that is by exhibiting true love, the love of God. That is the only way. And so this is the thing that we are called to. By having this kind of love, we are superseding any idea of faith and miracles and prophecies and giving and all of those things. Love is more important than them all. And so we come to that. We look, at, we look in 1 Corinthians 13, and, and uh, ironically, so often, this passage of Scripture is read in any wedding where the, the couple is you know, at least mindful or you know, uh, 
associated with Christianity in any way. And I say ironically because as time goes on, the love dwindles and, and uh, the relationships break apart. But it's not just true, the, the marriage relationship, like I said, all of our relationships are broken and are struggling to some degree. And it is love that we need in order to fix it up. So what are the characteristics of love? Now here it is. You want to be a super spiritual Christian? This is the list that we need to pay to, pay attention to. This right here is what we need to pay attention to. This is where we have to understand what true love is all about. And this is what we need to put into practice in our lives. So, verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Um, I just want to stop there on that puffed up because so many of them uh, have to do with this. So here's, here's your life. It's like the little balloon here, right? This is your life right here. So if you're puffed up or arrogant or proud or bringing attention to yourself, which is, which is what you know, love doesn't do. Love doesn't bring attention to myself. When I'm selfish, I bring attention to myself, right? So I, I end up like this balloon. This word puffed up means full of air, you know, to, to uh, blow up, to puff up, you know, like a bird puffs up its feathers to make itself bigger, and some other animals kind of do that to give the impression that they're bigger than they are. So, you know, it's to fill with wind. This is what it means to puff up. Well, you know, the reality is, is more like a big fizzle, right? Because at the end of the day, we're just nothing more than this. But, but you see... It doesn't matter that I'm this, because you're not supposed to be looking at me. I'm not supposed to be looking at me. Who am I supposed to be looking at? I'm supposed to be looking at God, and I'm supposed to be looking at you. So if this is all that I am, and God can use this, then praise the Lord for that. Love is not puffed up. It is not arrogant. Let's continue here. Love does not behave rudely. Oh, by the way, you know, I expected this to go... But you see, it's just the great big fizzle, right? And that's, that's what it is. You just pop up, it's just the great big fizzle. Love is not uh, rude. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Iniquity. Some of these are what's going on on the inside here. It's not just how we're acting on the outside. It's what's going on in the inside. And by the way, what we think And how we feel matters. We can't just kind of uh, make sure we don't speak it out of our mouth. What's going on on the inside matters. It makes a difference. You can't be angry on the outside or on the inside. You can't be lustful on the outside or on the inside. You've got to bring it there. So, love thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So, if we want to restore and rejuvenate our relationships, this is where we need to turn to this list here of the qualities and characteristics of love. So whenever we find ourselves impatient with somebody, or whenever we speak an unkind word or do an unkind act towards somebody... Whenever we are jealous of what someone else is doing or jealous of someone else's position or jealous 
or envious of what they might have and want it for ourselves. Whenever we make a big deal of ourselves, whenever we're rude or mean because of how someone has treated us, we are not acting in love. Whenever we harbor bitterness or resentment, there is no love there. Whenever we are unwilling to help someone, whenever we don't believe someone, whenever we focus on our circumstance rather than on the hope that God gives, we are not acting in love. When you give up on someone, you are not walking in love. So we are called to walk in love, and love is the greatest thing. As a matter of fact, Jesus could move the mountains, and Jesus knew the future, and Jesus proclaimed the truth, and Jesus healed people. Jesus did all of these things, but he came to this earth because of his great love that we, he had for us, even though we are, were sinners. And his great love took him to the cross, and he died on the cross, and he took our sins upon him because of his love for us. That was the greatest thing that he did. And so we are to turn around and to act in the same way. We know what love is. We kind of exhibit it on a small scale every day, especially to those who are part of our family, I hope. Uh, as a matter of fact, well, you know, on the other hand, our family, they're the ones that, bre- that bear the brunt of our non-love also. It's just kind of interesting there. But anyway, you know, we, we understand what it means. I get up here and I read this list, and we know these things. There, there's no surprises there. And yet, when it comes to actually putting them into practice, that's where we struggle. And it's true for me as it is for everybody else. You know, we live in this flesh, and our flesh causes us to turn the attention to ourselves. And and so it makes it difficult for me to turn my attention to God like I ought and to turn my attention to others like I ought. I'm too full of myself. But loving others and loving God is not optional. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. And uh, you've heard me say this before, but if you ever want to be convicted of your Christianity, just turn to 1 John chapter 4 and start, I mean, 1 John, the, 1 John, the, and just read the whole thing, not just chapter 4, but you want to be, now, now who wants to be convicted of their Christianity? But that's what happens when you read 1 John. It's just so convicting in so many ways. The the exhortations that he gives are so far out there. And this is just a little taste of it here. First of all, in verse 19, he is the reason we can love. We love, it says in verse 19, we love him because he first loved us, right? So he loved us first and enabled us, therefore, as a result, to love him. So he makes this love possible. If, if you want to restore your relationships, if you want to rejuvenate your relationships, and you know as a Christian you're supposed to have love, you're not going to be able to muster it on your own. You, you can't just flip a switch and say, okay, well, I'm going to do better at loving. No. In order to love those around, around you, you have to fall on your knees and you have to cry out to God and say, oh, Lord, help me. I cannot do this. I cannot love that person. They're always mean. They're always this. They're always that. It's always so hard. I cannot love them. Help me to love them. I need you to do it. And that's where it starts. We are exhorted in 1 John chapter 4 to love. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves 
is born of God and knows God. So there again, we see that love comes out of having been born again, of having had salvation through Christ, and having a fellowship of, of, uh, of knowledge and intimacy with God. Then we can love others. Love is necessary, verse 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if God is love and you're not loving, then you do not know God. That's, that's what I mean by this is pretty hard stuff here. He doesn't hold back any punches. You can't say you love God and not love the people that are around you. Love is necessary. Let's keep on reading verses 9 through 11. It says, In this the love of God was manifested towards us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. So that's, that's where I just said that it was love, that it was because of His love for us that He came to this earth in order to die for us. That is the great love of God. So, God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might ha- live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He did this for us, let us do the same. A final exhortation to love at the end of chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Now, it's talking about loving your brother, and, you know, we're talking, you know, we, we could make a case that this is, you know, talking about loving other Christians, but if we're talking about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, how much more are we also talking about loving our family members close to us? I mean, that's what it's talking about. He loved us even while we were his enemies. Let us turn around and love others. And it is love. It is acting by those characteristics. And I would encourage each one of us to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and list out those simple qualities of love and put them out in front of us somehow. Write them out or whatever. Just make a list. Um, and let us turn to this list whenever someone irritates us or, or ignores us or does whatever they do to us or whenever we're, we're confronted with coming around another person, let us turn to this list and be reminded of how we should act towards them. Let us love with the love of Christ. Let us love because he loved us. Only then can our relationships be restored. I uh, entitled the message today, A Call to All, Cultivating Strong Relationships with Love. So if you're here today, as uh, Ben and the music, whoever's coming up for the music, they come up here. If you're here today and there is a relationship in your life that is broken or hurting or struggling, um, I don't know what, doesn't matter to what extent, if there is such a relationship, maybe it's with a parent, maybe it's with a child, maybe it's with a sibling, maybe it's with a neighbor, maybe it's with a coworker. I don't know. If there is a relationship, at least one, I would encourage you as we sing our final song this morning to turn that relationship